All right, grab your Bibles, everyone. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 49. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one out of the pew. Put your phone away. You won't need it for the service. But you will need the Word of God. Verse 1. Verse 1 of chapter 49. Hear the Word of the Lord. Jacob the prophet, Jacob inspired by God the Holy Spirit, says to his sons in verse number one, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. This is prophecy. This is eschatological in nature. It deals with the end times, at least in part. Verse eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute... Or your Bible may say Shiloh, or your Bible may say he comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, referring to the ethnicities or the nations, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's pray. Oh God, help me to be a good teacher this morning of your word. Holy Spirit, prevail. May this be an incredibly helpful time of edification. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's get started, for we have much to cover. We've been working through this idea of Shiloh. This is our third sermon on Shiloh. I've been wanting you to see that there is this pattern of prophecy throughout Scripture, beginning in Genesis 3.15, and now 49.10, and Deuteronomy 18, and 2 Samuel 7, and Psalm 2.22, and then 110, or Isaiah 7.14, where a virgin is going to give birth, or Ezekiel 21.27, where he's coming, or Daniel 7, or Daniel 9, in which we talk about the anointed one, or the Messiah, or Micah 5, who put special emphasis on Bethlehem. These prophecies are throughout the entire scripture, telling us about a Messiah coming, a he coming, a prophet coming, one who's going to do the will of the Lord, this thread of prophecy. So let's review. In Genesis 3.15, we saw that he would be born of a woman and that he would crush the head of the serpent. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 49, he'd be descendant of Judah, praised and bowed down before and his hand would be on the neck of his enemies. In chapter 10, we saw that he'd be a ruler, backslash a shepherd. He'd be associated with peace and tranquility. And then the nations, the peoples, would obey him as their king. We asked last week, does Shiloh bring Shiloh? And the answer is yes. That the person of the Messiah, Shiloh, brings the tranquility or the peace of Shiloh. I want to show you Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. 
there is a promise from Moses that God would raise up for them a prophet like you, that being Moses, among their brothers. And that God promises, Yahweh promises, to put in his mouth his words. And that he, referring to Jesus, the Messiah, ultimately, would speak to them all that I command him. How many times in your New Testament does Jesus go out of his way to say, I'm speaking what the Father has for me to say? Repetitive everywhere. In 2 Samuel 7, we learned that he'd be a descendant of King David, that he would build a spiritual house for God, and that of his kingdom there would be no end. In 2 Samuel 7, 13, we have this dualistic prophecy. Dualistic meaning it applies to Solomon, and it applies to the ultimate son of David, that being Jesus. Solomon did, in fact, build a house for God. It's called a temple. But Jesus Christ also is building a house for God. I'll show you a couple of scriptures. First Peter chapter two, verse five. You yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer God spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Or Hebrews chapter three, verse six. Christ, referring to the Messiah, the Christ, is faithful over God's house as a son and we are his house. So we're the house, no longer a temple built of brick and mortar, it's now us. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, if I tarry long, Paul writes, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. He's talking, not talking about church. He's not talking about sitting on the pew or wearing the right clothing. This is the people of God or the church of God or the ecclesia or the assembly of God's people. So the house that Jesus Christ is building consists of Israelites who believe that Jesus is the Christ and Gentiles or non-Jews of all ethnicities who believe that Jesus is the Christ. So now let's look at verse 11. And we want to try to unpack all of 11 today. Hopefully we'll get through the entire verse. Binding his foal to the vine, one stanza. His donkey's colt to the choice vine, another stanza. He has washed his garments in wine, third stanza. And his vesture in the blood of grapes, fourth stanza. That's our verse. So binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine... So am I to break this up? Am I to take binding his foal to the vine and go one direction and then his donkey's colt and go the other direction because one says vine and the other says choice vine? How do I interpret scripture? How do we, as the King James says in uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, rightly divide the word of truth? The Nazbe, I think, interprets it correctly, interprets or correctly teaches the word of truth or accurately teaches the word of truth. Well, when I dig into this Hebrew word here, I find that sometimes it's translated colt and sometimes it's translated foal. So what does that tell me? That there isn't a distinction that I can make, that I can't divide it up because the Hebrew language doesn't let me make that distinction if I'm trying to divide it up. Instead, I have to look at it as one truth. For example, let's look at Psalm 19.1 on the screen together. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. One message or two messages? One. Clearly one, right? 
We call this a couplet. We call this a couplet. It's all over your Hebrew Bible. It's everywhere. The author says, I want to make a point. What's your point? That the heavens declare the glory of God. Now I'm going to turn around and emphasize that point. How are you going to emphasize it? I'm going to say the same thing, only different. Yep, I'm going to restate it. So the heavens mirrors up with sky, declare mirrors up proclaims, and glory of God is his handiwork. One message. Why am I showing you this? Because I want you to see that in verse number 11, there is one message. There's one message said four different ways. Four different ways. One message with four different ways. So here's, here's the thesis. Right up front in blue, easy to see. Binding his colt to a choice vine speaks of an inconceivable abundance. An inconceivable abundance. All right, let's say it slightly different. Judah, ultimately Jesus, but of the tribe of Judah, Judah, Jesus, right? You know where we went. We went Judah, we went David, we went to Jesus. Jesus, Shiloh, is going to bring to the people of God an inconceivable abundance. All right? How inconceivable is this abundance? How inconceivable is this? You're going to have so many of the choicest vines that you could bind your donkey, your colt, your foal to the vine and he could eat the grapes, eat the vine and you'd have no concern. And the reason you'd have no concern is because there's a vine coming behind that one and a vine coming behind that one. There are so many vines producing the best of grapes that you could say to your donkey, have at it. All right. You guys are a tough crowd. <laughs> How many have a garden or have ever done anything with a garden? How many have a garden or have ever done anything with a garden? Okay. Gardening is exceptionally hard. Do you know why gardening is exceptionally hard? Because of the curse. You have herbicides to take care of problems. You have insecticides to take care of problems. You have hoes to take care of problems. You build fences to take care of problems. You put a scarecrow in the middle of your garden to take care of problems. You keep a BB gun handy to take care of problems. Like, I'm not raising this for you to eat. What do you not understand about that, Mr. Rabbit? Okay, this is for me, not you. But wait, Jacob is prophesying a time when the donkeys can enjoy the grapes because there's so many. Have at it. Eat until you're full because we have no concern that we're going to run out. We have no concern at all. Perhaps the soil's fertility and the abundance of vines are so great that the master has no concern about a lack of grapes because his animal is eating some of the vines or the grapes or even the choicest of the vines. John MacArthur's study note in his Bible reads, 
This language, verses 11 and 12, describes prosperity so great that the people will tie a donkey to a choice vine, letting it eat because there is such abundance. Wine will be as plentiful as water and everyone will be healthy. Now, I know that we're in a Baptist church and this is why you guys are not getting excited about wine. I got that, right? Because you're Baptist and you're like, we don't drink, Pastor, so what's there to get excited about? Please understand that in the Hebrew culture, It doesn't get any better than this. They're not going to have a party without wine there. They're not having a celebration without wine. We're never going to invite you to the table without there being set with wine. And if you are a prized guest, you're getting the best that we've been able to produce this year. If you're a normal guest or an average guest or someone we would never want to see again, then you're getting the garbage that we have and trying to get rid of you. But if we love you and we're trying to have a celebration, then wine's going to be on the table. And the greater degree that it is, it's, I know, Baptist, you're struggling with this. I see it in your face. I get it. But there wasn't the same level of concerns that we have today. Wine was a sign of God's blessing. Wine was a manifestation of the joy of the Lord. You celebrated an amazing harvest. The grapes look terrific this year. The vines are maxed out. Could there be any more grapes on that vine are the expressions that you would hear. Man, these taste amazing. You would hear them saying, can you imagine the wine we're going to get out of this harvest? And it would be celebrated. All right, now, what about this? What about this sentence right here? All right. Now, to all my brothers and sisters in the Christ, in the church that don't agree with me, please don't turn me off yet. Please give me a fair shake. I I don't want to have a discussion about whether there is or isn't a millennial kingdom. You're gonna think that's what we're talking about. And the answer is that's not what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is how do we rightly divide truth? How do we correctly interpret scripture? How do we teach God's word in this church? What do we say and not say? What are we upfront about? And what do we say, you know what? It could or could not say that because he says this is likely a millennial prophecy. So why did John MacArthur add this final sentence? Why are we talking about this? Typically, this thinking originates from the idea that agrarian prosperity and similar ideas are confined to the thousand-year kingdom. Confined. But is this how I should think? Is this the right way to think? Is this how I should interpret Scripture? Here's the general idea. The Old Testament is packed full of descriptions about a period of time lasting a thousand years after the return of Christ to the earth. By default, if the first sentence is true, and I know this is a deep lesson this morning, but that's why you come to Berean. You don't come to Berean for fluff. There are many other churches you can go to if you're looking for that. I'll help you. (laughs) By default, this means we know virtually nothing about eternity with God in the new heaven and new earth. Now, this is a big deal to me. It might not be to you, but it's a big deal to me. Because let me argue with you for just a moment 
that if eternity is a trillion years and it's more than a trillion, but if it was a trillion and the millennial kingdom is a thousand as understood, then that is a dot compared to a trillion. So what we're saying is scripture is all packed with everything about a dot and says nothing about everything around the dot. And what I would argue with you is, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. That it's all about the new heaven and the new earth. And that the point of this verse is to get you excited about a period of time in which the harvest is going to be so abundant that your donkey can just have at it and you have no care. And that there's all kinds of scriptures. Now, why is this important? Why are we talking about this this morning? Because Christians, we are so in love with this world and we've got these warped perceptions about heaven twiddling around with our harp on a cloud and we're like, boring, can we do some manly things? And that's because we have a warped understanding of eternity. Our eternity is on this earth. Not billions and billions of miles away in other galaxies, having no idea what life is going to be like. It is on this earth only new. On this earth without curses. On this earth without sin. On this earth back to the Garden of Eden. No mosquitoes, okay? Like, like you can have outside activities and not get sunburned. Golly, church. Don't you want to get excited about something? Aren't you ready to leave this earth in which people get beat up and die? Aren't you ready for the, na- the nationalities, the ethnicities, the nations to get along? Aren't you ready for the curse to be removed? Our Bible is packed and packed full of prophecies like this. Look at this one. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fat cow together. And a little child shall lead them. So let me tell you how this works, Sister Renee. Someone reads little child and they go, there won't be little children in the new heaven and new earth, so that must be a millennial prophecy and they can find it all in there. First of all, you don't know that. Nothing in scripture indicates how children are in heaven, the new heaven, new earth. In other words, we get all kinds of joy by having children amongst us. Because you want to know, John, am I going to be 50 in heaven? Am I going to be 40 in heaven? Am I my my old body or my new body? All kinds of wildness here. But what if this is just amazing poetic language with all kinds of hyperbole? What do you mean hyperbole? Beautiful exaggerations. So a little child could lead a leopard? How tame would a leopard have to be in order for a little child to be able to lead it? How beautiful would it be that a lion and fat calf could get together? All right, let's try this because this feels like I'm just falling flat. Okay. How many have been to a zoo? All right, we're getting a little participation. Great. How would you like to go to a zoo with no fences? No boundaries. You just walk right into the monkey cage and have no fear. 
You just walk, you just jump in the pond with the killer whales and swim as much as you want. You walk right into that cage with all the snakes, you know, all the snakes. Yeah, I saw it right there, sister. You did it. That's a result of the enmity between the serpent and humanity. But remember, the enmity's been what? Removed. So in the new heaven and earth, we're all snake handlers, not just the yahoos from West Virginia. We all handle snakes. I'm trying to give you something to get excited about. God has something for our future, and it's better than this earth. Now, let me ask you, do you want it to be confined to a thousand years? Or would you be okay if it was all eternity? Me too. Me too. So in my opinion, this means that you can argue with me. I'm giving you a special dispensation to argue with me. In my opinion, far too many Old Testament passages in both the major and minor prophets are being pigeonholed into the millennial kingdom without any legitimate exegetical justification. Now, that's a big sentence, isn't it? That's like seminary. So let's break it down. Legitimate exegetical justification. What does that mean? It means it's in the text. It's in the text. There are two ways of dealing with Scripture. And we got a whole bunch of teachers in this room. And in Berean, let me explain to you how we do it. I'm I'm communicating a vision and leadership right now. The truth comes out of the text. We don't take the truth and superimpose it on top of the text. All right, what do you mean by that? I've got my system of theology, and it's the grid, and here it is right here. I'm holding it up, and I know I'm right, so I stamp it on top of the Scripture. We let the text say what it says and only what it says, and nothing more. Does the text say this? Does it come out of this? Let me give you an example, and I hope I don't run out of time. We have a us and we have a R in Genesis chapter number one, verses 26, 27, 28. Let us make man in our image. Can we be dogmatic that the us is the triunity of God? Can we be dogmatic about that? Okay, you say yes because of the rest of the scripture. But without the rest of the scripture, can we be dogmatic? No. We can't. And we certainly can't say triunity when the us is only plural. You know how we read that in? We read it from our other knowledge and we drop it on top of it. But if we want to be fair to Scripture, we should say something like this. This may foreshadow or point to or hint at the triunity of God, but we can't be sure of this. Why can't we be sure of this? Well, what did the Jews say every single day in all their prayers? There is how many gods? One, 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 one. What's the Jewish religion? Monotheistic. Right? So when I say pigeonhole, please understand. Don't turn me off. I know you guys are ready to do that. I don't agree with pastor. That's okay. I want you to just join the argument saying, should I be throwing this in the millennial kingdom or should I say, we're not sure. So this type of thinking is problematic for several reasons. 
Nothing in the Old Testament even remotely hints that the idea of the future kingdom's peace and prosperity has an end. Nothing. And, and do you want it to come to an end? <laughs> you want it to come to an end? I mean, just imagine if you know it's coming to an end. 998 years left. 531 years left. 241 years left. Holy cow, we're down to 20 years left. You want that? I don't want that either. Let me show you what I mean. Here's Amos 9, 13 through 14. One of these minor prophets that I'm talking about. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, Yahweh, when the plowman should overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Now again, these are these couplets. And we may struggle at these couplets because we don't do gardens. We do Walmart. Or the elite of us do Harris Teeter. Right. Yep. You know, I don't go there. You know. Publix. Sure. Right. Now we're talking. But again, oh, that's it. Fresh market. Whoa. Check her tithing records. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You know what they say about Whole Foods, right? It takes your whole paycheck. Yeah. Okay. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper. Now, folks, get this imagery. You're not agrarian by nature, so you don't immediately get it. The plowman is the person who's preparing the dirt for the seed. The reaper is harvesting the, the product, the, the beans, the grapes, whatever it is. What the communication is here is that there's no gap in time between when you're planting and when you're harvesting because the soil reproduces itself with such a level of abundance that it's inconceivable to you and I. How is that possible? Because the curse has been removed. We have no idea the degree to which the fall has impacted all of humanity. What's the problem in Memphis? The fall. What's the problem in Baltimore? The fall. What's the problem in the church? The fall. What's the problem outside of the church? The fall. And you could literally go on and on and on and on with all this. And so the new heaven and the new earth eliminates all the curses of the fall. All of them. So we read, I will restore the fortunes of my people of Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. So, so we read this and we go super literal and we say, there'll be no cities in the new heaven and new earth, so this must be a millennial prophecy. Okay, so let's say you're right on that. Let's say you're right on that. Well, 2 Peter 3, 7 says, the heavens and earth now exist are stored up for fire. So get this with me and I'm trying to engage you. Come on, stay with me. This means we spend 995, 999 years, 11 months, 31 days rebuilding cities only for them to be destroyed at the end. Because what happens? It's all going to be burned up. Maybe, maybe the author is giving us the most poetic and understandable language 
that Israelites could understand concerning how great it's going to be in the new heaven, new earth. Okay, let me say it different. Do you understand that we're still going to be working in the new heaven, new earth? But your work will be so different. All right, let me give you an example. There'll be no need for seer school. No need for seer school because there'll be no sin. There'll be no need for a doctor because Jesus is the great physician. There'll be no need for vaccinations because Jesus is the great vaccine. Folks, why are you not getting excited? Do you want some more vaccines? Do you want COVID 2.0? Come on, church. Do you not want something to look forward to? Turn to Isaiah 25. All right. Turn to Isaiah 25. Turn there so that you can mark it in your Bible. Turn there so you can take a note. Turn there so you can find it in the future. Turn there so that you can at least placate me that you're following along and that you haven't turned me off. Isaiah 25. You're reading through Isaiah. You're doing your morning devotions in Isaiah. And you get to verses 6, 7, and 8. You're doing your morning quiet time. You've asked the Lord to give you direction concerning his word. You're asking the Lord to teach you something from scripture. You read in verse six, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts, the sovereign God of gods, that's the idea here, the Lord of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast. Will make for all peoples, not Israelites, all peoples, You mean ethnically diverse? Yes, ethnically diverse. He'll make a feast for all peoples of what kind of food? What kind of food? Are we eating peanut butter and jelly? No, no, this is rich food. Crab legs, shrimp, filet mignon, Chris's steakhouse, rich food. What are we drinking? No Mountain Dew. It's a feast. What kind of wine? What kind of wine? Well-aged. Rich food of full of marrow. Aged wine. Well-refined. When you're, when you're drinking it, you won't be choking down any skins that were left inside there. You remember how they made wine in those days, right? A little toe fungus to add to your wine. Nasty, isn't it? Lucy. Mm-hmm. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people. What's the covering that's cast over all people? What's the veil that's spread over all the nations? It's death. See it? He will swallow up death. How long, church? Forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all their tears. Wipe them all away. All their tears, they're all being wiped away. All of them, gone. He will take away the reproach of his people and he will take away the earth for the Lord has spoken. Go to the next slide while I look for the clicker, please. So on this mountain, feast of rich food, well-aged wine, death is eliminated, No more sorrow, no more tears, no more headache. Reproach of God's people, sinful people is totally removed. 
All right, turn to Matthew 8. And please hold Isaiah in the back of your mind because we haven't left it. We're, we're making a connection between Isaiah and Matthew and 1 Corinthians 15. We're tying three scriptures together. So Matthew 8. Yes, we're in our Bibles. We're all over scripture. That's, that's our only authority. So that's why we use it. Listen to the words of Jesus. And they are... So encouraging. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, this is a Roman centurion. He is not an Israelite. He came forward to Jesus, appealing to him. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. Only say the word. No need for you to come. You just say the word wherever you're at and he will be healed. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who have followed him, truly, your King James Bible says, verily, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Now look what he says next. This is why we read this verse. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with who? Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. When are we going to do this? In the kingdom of heaven. Keep reading. Don't stop. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a description. What is going on in this passage? There are two kingdoms in this passage. Do you see it? There are two kingdoms here. There are sons of a kingdom and those sons get cast out. What kingdom is this? This is the kingdom of Israel. They are the sons of Abraham, but they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. They reject the Messiah. And what happens to them? They are cast out. But what about the other ones? What about the ones that aren't Israelites? The ones from the east, the ones from the west. Do you understand that's us? That's us. You're either from the west or you're from the east from a perspective of Israel. And if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, like the Roman centurion believed that Jesus is in the Christ, then you are going to be invited to the feast of Isaiah 25. Because the feast in Isaiah 25 would have been exclusively understood to be Jews. But wait a minute. It didn't say Jews. It said peoples. And Jesus is saying, they're going to come. Well, how do I get there? You have faith that Jesus is the Christ and you will get to eat at the table with Jesus. In fact, Jesus told us, he said in Matthew 26, Mark 14 and Luke 22, I, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Do you know what he's drinking? The wine from Genesis 49, 10, 11. And I know, Baptists, we're going to be in for a rude awakening. I get that. Like, my Lord, I've never done that. You know, Peter, chapter Acts, 
Haven't ate that? Now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Now again, we're still in Isaiah 25. We have not left Isaiah 25. Paul the apostle is going to quote from Isaiah 25. So again, church, we're connecting dots. Isaiah 25, there's this incredible feast that the people are going to be at. Matthew 8, Jesus says, I'm inviting folks from the east and the west to be at this table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We are eliminating the Israel-Gentile division. We all eat at the same table. There's not going to be an adult table and a kid's table. There's not going to be a Jewish table and a Gentile table. There's one people of God, not two. All right, verse 50. Verse 50 in 1 Corinthians 15. I tell you this, brothers. I tell you this, sisters. I tell you this, brothers and sisters in Christ. I tell you this. What are you going to tell us, Paul? Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You're not going into the kingdom of God as a mortal man. You're not going there. Read what he says. Nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we will all be changed. Why do we need to be changed? Because you cannot inherit the kingdom of God with your current body. Your current body is not going to be allowed in the kingdom of God. Why is that, Pastor Sean? Because this body has a flesh. This body has a sin nature. This body perishes. This body has a mortality to it. And when you enter the kingdom of God, it goes forever. And when you enter the kingdom of God, there is no sin there. So your sin nature is left behind when he changes you from mortal to immortal or from perishable to imperishable. Is that clear to everyone? And by the way, you should want that with all your heart, mind, and soul. Get rid of glasses. No arthritis in the knee. And literally on and on. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we all shall be changed. For this perishable body, Paul writes, must put on imperishable. And this mortal body, Paul writes, must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying of Isaiah 25. What's the saying of Isaiah 25? That death is swallowed up in victory. I don't like the way you said that. I don't like the way you're thinking. You can't say death shall be swallowed up in victory like a pansy. Okay? You need to say it the way it's intended to be said. This is a really big deal. How many funerals will there be in the new heaven and the earth? Goose egg. Do you know why? Death has been swallowed up. What a, what a poetic description. Swallowed up. Like, I'll just take it and eliminate it right off the table. It's gone. Swallowed up. 
please bid me the privilege since I'm the pastor of pushing back on you just a little bit. If you subscribe to the idea that there is definitely a millennial kingdom, then what you have to do is insert a thousand years into this passage. Because at the millennial kingdom, there's Gog and Magog, which is death. So you have to say the last trumpet happens, and then somewhere in the passage, there's a thousand years, and then we get to the end where death is swallowed up. In other words, and again, just just bid me the opportunity, because I study all week and I get to preach here, that what you're saying is the clock starts on year one at a thousand years and we do the countdown for another 990 years until death is eliminated. Or death gets eliminated when Jesus comes back and we go into the age to come. All right, next slide. Man, I can't keep up with the clicker today. Does the rest of the Bible allow us to insert a thousand years between feasting with Jesus in the Father's kingdom and the glorified spiritual bodies and the elimination of death? My answer would be no, you work through it on your own. All right, I want to get to my final point because I'm running out of time. We'll come back and we're going to look at that donkey stuff next week. All right. Look at the couplets. Please, uh, it's on the screen. Look at the couplets with me. It's on the screen. Bind me his foal to the vine, his colt to the choicest vine. He will wash his robes in wine, uh, wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. Do you understand the grapes are the vine? Do you see the connection right there? It's not two messages. It's still one message. It's four stanzas of one message. It's four stanzas of one message. What is the single message? That one of the primary characteristics of the kingdom that Christ establishes as the Messiah is an overwhelming abundance of wine, grapes, agriculture, prosperity, or blessing. Now turn to John chapter 2, please. Right there. Turn to John chapter 2, and we'll be done. I want you to see this connection, and then we'll be done. And I just ask you to give me a fair shake. That's all. I'm just asking for a reasonable pastor has studied. Let me at least listen to what he said for a minute before I turn him off. John chapter number one, and then we'll transition to two. We're dealing in John chapter number one with whether Jesus is the Christ. That's what we're dealing with in John chapter one. Is Jesus the Christ? That's the end of the chapter. John the Baptist is fully convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Philip is fully convinced and Nathanael becomes fully convinced. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there's no deceit. He was an honest man, a noble character. There's no deceit in him. Nathanael said to Jesus, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under a fig tree. I saw you. You saw me doing what, like you weren't there. Yeah, yeah, I know I wasn't there, but I knew you were there. And I, I'm a, I'm, I know where you were. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. You know what that is? That is the saving confession of faith. Right there. He he can't believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It hasn't happened yet. He believes in everything that Jesus has revealed concerning himself. 
Jesus answered him, because I said this to you, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. By the way, he just promised him eternal life right there. He just promised him eternal life right there. Now look at verse number one of chapter two. I need you to see the connection that John makes. On the third day, when there was a wedding at Canaan in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there, Jesus also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, and by the way, this is a major problem, okay? This is the equivalent of running out of fried chicken at the church picnic. (laughs) Pastors have been fired for things like that before, okay? This is a big deal to run out of wine. The wine ran out and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now look at Jesus. Look at his response. But Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Please understand, he just said, not my problem. That's exactly what he says, not my problem. Like, like, I don't know why you're telling me this. It's not my wedding. I'm not the host. It's not my problem. Now look at the very next sentence he says. Please let the text speak to you. My hour has not yet come. What hour is he talking about? Please don't say death, burial, and resurrection because that has nothing to do with the context of the scripture. Death, burial, and resurrection has nothing to do with the context of the scripture. Let me tell you what I think and I could be wrong. Did you just hear me say that? I could be wrong. I think that you could write down Genesis 49, 11 right there. The hour in which Shiloh will provide the abundance of wine as promised by Jacob. Why are you saying that? Because the entire context, Gene, is not death, burial, and resurrection. It's not forgiveness of sins. It's wine at a wedding. That's the problem. No one's talking about sin in this thing. No one's talking about death. No one's talking about healing. No one's talking about those. What is the problem in the text? There is no what? Wine. And what does Jesus do in just a moment? He produces an abundance of wine in an inconceivable manner. He takes what people use, normally use to wash their hands, water, and turns it into, wait a minute, I heard about water. Was water not mentioned in Genesis 49, 11? Yes, it was. In Genesis 49, 11, they said that there's so much wine that you could wash your clothes in it. Who does that? Well, who can take water and turn it into wine? Jesus. What are you saying? What, exactly, break it down for me, Pastor Sean. Slow down and break it down. I am saying that Jesus, at the end, the Messiah, is going to perfectly fulfill Genesis 49, 11, which is an abundance of crops in an inconceivable level. And then on a single day in Capernaum, there was the smallest micro picture of that because Jesus did for them at that wedding what he's going to do for everyone at the ultimate wedding. It's called the wedding of the bride of Christ. So in the same way that Jesus provided just a little bit of wedding that wine that day, from what? What did he provide? From water. How much? An abundance of inconceivable amounts. They took all the water pots and what they do with it? 
Like literally go get your buckets, go get everything that you have. And he changed it all right there. Now, I'm almost done. Just give me another minute. They scooped up the wine and they took it to the master. And how did he describe it? The best wine. You know where it came from? The choicest vine. From the choicest vine. Wait, who's the choicest vine? Oh, it's Jesus, isn't it? How many of you love it when your Bible comes together? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God in heaven, your word is overwhelmingly connective. So much so, Lord God, that we just not need to let it say what it says and nothing more. God, if there's anyone here that's struggling with the authenticity or the veracity of the Bible or the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, grant them, oh God, this day faith in Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen.